listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. Normally, this is a show about, you know, uh, repairing guitars and such, and we're we're going to talk about that a little bit, but this is a special episode. The Halloween episode. It's the Halloween episode. You know, we've been doing this for years. Traditionally, we do some guitar repair horror stories, and we have a few of those, too, but we're going to spice it up this year with gig horror stories. I know you all have them. And you all sent them in. I got a huge stack of paper here, so we're gonna we're gonna do that. Sitting beside me, of course, is uh, my lovely co-host and wife, Melissa. Greetings. I will read the questions and the horror stories, and uh, then we'll talk about them. Yep, that's what's gonna happen. Uh, I think we have some calls, but I don't know what's going on. Let's find out. Okay. Shall we? Yep. Hey, Eric and Melissa, this is uh, Sean from Allentown. Uh, I was just thinking, a couple episodes ago, uh, you had someone call in or write in a message, and they mentioned uh, wanting to refinish a guitar with nitro over poly, and you just kind of asked, you know, like, I'm not sure why you would want to do that in the way that you do, and I don't want to speak for that person in particular, but... I've considered doing the same thing, and the real reason why is mostly out of convenience, because what appears to be most readily available when it comes to DIY refinishing is nitro. You do a Google search for that, and what appears to be the best options or the most readily available options are the rattle can nitro colors that are available from Stumac or like the Guitar Re-Ranch. Um, I have a couple guitars myself that I'd like to refinish, that have, you know, like the remnants of poly finishes on them, and I was intending on doing nitro finishes over them. And that's just because, you know, those aerosol nitros are seem to be the easiest things to come by for, you know, DIY stuff like this. Um, now, if you are aware of any resources or places or suggestions for DIY poly refinishes, I would actually kind of like to know if you know anything like that because I think a as as fun as a nitro finish would be, I think a poly finish would be more appropriate for these particular guitars. Uh, they're they're import guitars; they're not very expensive and everything. Poly is what they had on them. Poly would be more appropriate as an actual refinish. And honestly, I don't want to have to worry about where I set the guitar down after I'm done painting it. 
So if you actually have any suggestions or any resources that you know of for doing DIY poly, I'd really like to know it because otherwise I'm going to, you know, refinish these with nitro because that's just what I can find. Just thought I'd uh, offer that as, you know, why someone might want to refinish a poly guitar with nitro. So just my thoughts there. And if you have any suggestions on poly, I'd love to hear them. So thanks for the podcast. Uh, bye. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. I uh, don't really have any recommendations on poly. I don't spray poly. I don't do poly finishes. I don't paint over poly finishes. Uh, you have to understand that this is my profession, right? So I'm I'm not starting out like when I paint a guitar. I'm not starting out with a with like you know a, a poly finished squire, right? Uh, I'm painting guitars that are raw wood or, um, I'm stripping off the old finishes and then, and then repainting nitro over the raw wood that's properly, you know, pore filled and sanded and sealed and prepped. Right. So, um, I just don't have, I mean, this is like super DIY basement finishing and I don't have any recommendations, uh, like I said before, I think nitro is going to work over poly as long as you sand the surface uh, and scuff it up. Otherwise, the, it's not going to adhere properly, but it's just not... It's not his wheelhouse. It's just not what I'm going to do, and uh, I think to probably doing a backyard finish in poly is probably going to be harder than a backyard nitro finish, but I don't know because I don't really do that. So, sorry... Don't know. I'm not much help, but what can I say? Thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. I think we have another voicemail here. Let's find out. Yes, we do. Who's this from? We don't know. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Um, this is Alex here in Napa. I'm just calling in with a gig horror story. Um, I talked to my longtime bandmate because we've, uh, we've had a, a few, including one gig that almost happened in Cleveland where the uh, the promoter brought us a children's drum set from a pawn shop um, <laughs> because the venue didn't have a, uh, a drum set, and that wow. was pretty hilarious. But I think the, the clincher was we were doing a local show in uh, New York. It was about a 500-person show. It wasn't huge. Um, and the band before us brought this ridiculous day they had like a four-piece string section and like probably 11 people on stage and they also had a whole um video you know people videotaping the whole thing and recording it which uh was also against the rules at the club so we wound up having to pay a fee um and as part of that they agreed that they would record our set um but anyway they, it was a ridiculous opening slot for them but finally we get on stage um, and I go to set up all my stuff and, uh, my, my volume pedal just isn't there. And at the time I, I had kind of a complicated pedal board, but there was just no volume pedal. Um, and I had a bunch of kind of preset sounds. So I spent the whole night, uh, basically, uh, playing and in, in, in between different sections of songs, um, using the, the volume control on one of my, one of my overdrive pedals uh, with my, my foot to <laughs> try and simulate volume swells and whatnot. Um, and about midway through the set, I heard a loud bang um, and didn't look over until afterwards. But uh, that 
the videographer from the band before us came on stage and asked if anyone had seen his GoPro. Oh, um, no. And I looked behind, and, and sure enough, there was a GoPro on the ground kind of back, uh, right next to where the lighting rafters were. And I looked up on the rafters, saw a little glint of steel, and uh, the guy had taped his GoPro to my volume pedal to use it as a uh, <laughs> kind of like a, a thing to tilt the GoPro and get the best angle possible. Perfect. Um, wow. so ever since then, this, this volume pedal has had no touchy written on the top of it. I'll, I'll text you guys a picture. Um, sorry, I realize it's kind of long, but that's my, uh, my horse horse. I love that that guy just like, well, that thing is slightly angled. Nobody could possibly need that. And nobody's using this. What a, What even <laughs> is this? Nobody's used this since 1972. I'm going to tape my GoPro to it. That's hilarious. That is funny. Are you serious? I love it. I love it. Thank you. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Let's start with a tech question, shall we? Okay. Eric and Melissa, hello from Seattle. So, Mr. Guitar Scientist, my question today is theoretical. If a potentiometer is a variable resistor and a 250K potentiometer has the lowest resistance allowing the most high frequencies to go to ground, as opposed to a one meg pot that retains more of the highs, correct? Yes. Uh, what would happen if there was no potentiometer in the circuit? Like if the pickup was wired to a switch or just straight to the jack? Mm -hmm. What frequencies would be retained and not be dumped to ground? What would it sound like? Would it open a hole in the space-time continuum and collapse the entire universe? These are the things that I think about. What are your thoughts? That's from Zach. Well, Zach, don't stay up all night thinking about that. It's not a big deal. Uh, it's really... <clears throat> so, a 250K pot is going to be slightly darker. A 500K pot is going to be a little bit brighter. A 1 meg pot is going to be even brighter than that. And if you just hooked up a... a pickup straight to the jack with no controls it then it would be a little bit brighter than that even but these are you know uh gradations there it's not a huge it's not going to be like a night and day difference but there's certain ways to wire up a, a telecaster for example um where the one setting on the switch just goes right to the jack and bypasses the controls and it's kind of nice you know some people feel like it really uh, helps and gets them the really the full potential of their pickup. That's what Fender no-load pots are about. They have no-load pots where basically when when the pot is turned up all the way uh, all the way up, then there's a little cut in the in the uh, wafer in there so that there's so that the resistor is out of the circuit when you turn it all the way up. That's what a no-load pot is about. So. Um, yeah, not, I mean, you know, not a huge night and day difference. Like, nope, nobody in the audience of your gig is going to go, oh, man, that sounds like he has no-load pots. Now, that sounds like he's got his pickup wired straight to the jack. Nobody's going to care. But um, if it floats your boat, you can try it. You do get a tiny, tiny, tiny bit more output and a tiny, tiny bit more high-end when you do that. And that's the answer. Thank you, Zach. Very nice. Should we do a horror story? Yeah, let's it's do it. It's a huge one. I'll read it if you'd like. Uh, why don't we take turns? You read until you get tired. Okay. It all started with a friend. It always starts like that. A friend says, hey, there's someone you should meet. In this case, there were two someones, two women with absolutely phenomenal voices who were wanting to make music. At the time, I hadn't played out for quite a while, and when we got together for the first time, 
I was sucked in by their energy and enthusiasm and the way they sang together, swapping melody and harmony effortlessly. So we got together once a week and started writing songs. The older of the two women had been around a little open mic and coffee shop type stuff. She was competent enough to playing first position chords on her ovation. The younger was just out of college, early 20s, pecked around a dreadnought, which she banged on with no sense of dynamics. Me, I was just having fun singing and playing again and realizing that any suggestions I made were going to hurt someone's feelings. Keep in mind that the type of music we were making would have been best served with some sparse, finger-picked instrumentation, letting those great voices and my oh-so-clever lyrics be the focus. So, about six weeks after we'd first gotten together, I was surprised with a phone call. Hey, I got us a gig, my ovation-playing buddy said. Gig? What? I, I didn't even know I was in a band. <laughs> oh, I said. Yes, it's this weekend. It'll be great. Her excitement was palpable. This weekend? We can't start gigging in four days. All we've ever done is mess around. You just bring your electric guitar, okay? Okay. This isn't his first rodeo, he says. This ain't my first rodeo. What's it pay? She says, we're doing it for the exposure. It'll be good for us. Besides, you know how you're always trying to get the other girl to play something else? Well, she's going to borrow a bass. <laughs> uh, long silence on my end as I contemplate whether it would be worth it to cut off a toe with an axe in order to avoid this wreck. Then, well, we better get together every night to practice. She says, no need for that. It's just three songs. And with that, she gave me the playlist and hung up. So it's early afternoon on a street corner underneath a flapping canvas shade in the middle of the summer in a tourist town in Arizona. And I'm plugging in, looking past the semi-comatose sound guy to the few bored tourists shuffling past. There is no bass, only a dreadnought cradled in the arms of a young woman who, delightful, a human being as she might be, gets lost at every chord change. <laughs> and the band leader, who has just let me know in uncertain, in no uncertain terms that she knows what she's doing, is in tune. She tuned up last night. Stop worrying. <laughs> Those three songs lasted approximately seven and a half and one half lifetimes. Immediately upon starting the first song, the younger girl froze up. She opened her mouth up a time or two, but nothing came out. Her right arm moved furiously over her guitar's strings, though, as her left hand randomly pressed on them somewhere near the nut. The other woman, meanwhile, was playing at approximately three times the song's tempo, swallowing the mic with that out-of-tune ovation going clangity, 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 clang. And as I finally settled on playing single notes, which I could at least try to bend into something approximating <laughs> her tuning. We ended to a smattering of polite yet bored applause from the few hardy souls who had stopped to watch the calamity unfold. My two poor bandmates started screaming screaming at each other, tears and snot flying while I'm trying to break down, as some guy who had been drinking beer since daybreak came up and wanted to know who'd done the relic job on my guitar. <laughs> my biggest regret is that I didn't simply crank up the amp, lay the guitar in front of it, and destroy the hearing of every living thing within a quarter mile with glorious single coil in front of a PV amp feedback. It was the most punk rock show I was ever a part of, and I was too dumb to realize it. <laughs> that's that's from Spider. Spider. Oh, I've done a lot of those. That is a good story, Spider. It is. Should we do another tech question? Sure. <clears throat> Hey guys, I keep hearing questions here and elsewhere about oiling your fingerboard. 
By the amount of press it gets, it seems like it is something of a national pastime for guitar players these days and a source of constant concern. I find it a bit curious. I presently own four guitars with Brazilian rosewood fingerboards. The oldest was made in 1938, the newest in 1952. I have owned most of them for over 20 years. Here's the thing. I have never put as much as a single drop of oil, lemon, linseed, or whatever on any of them, and there are no cracks in sight. They all look perfect. My question to you is, is it really necessary to oil a fingerboard? What is all the fuss about? And am I going to burn in hell for neglecting mine? Or is the whole thing an unscrupulous marketing strategy aimed to sell unnecessary guitar maintenance products? Personally, I think it's the latter. Thank you for your thoughts and opinions on this controversial issue. That's from Bud Bud. in Maine. There's no controversy. There ain't no good guy. There There ain't no bad guy. There's just you and me, yep, and we just disagree. Thanks. Uh, Bud, maybe if you lived in the high desert, you would have a different experience, but um, oiling your fingerboard is a good idea. Now, old Brazilian rosewood is a very oily and dense wood, and it's, uh, it's different than, let's say, an ebony fingerboard or modern, crummy Indian rosewood. Uh but it's a good idea to oil that occasionally. The thing is about it is that it's um, it it doesn't have a finish on it, right? Right. So, uh, it's subject to whatever humidity is going on around it, and if your guitar is in a is in a really dry environment, then that wood can shrink, and when it shrinks. Not only can it crack, but you also get like sharp fret edges. So it's a good idea to keep that oiled. But you're in Maine. Maybe you don't have humidity problems. Maybe it's not a big deal, but it's not a bad idea to oil those. It really is not a bad idea. Uh, Old Brazilian rosewood is the least worrying. So I totally get where you're coming from. But uh, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, well, like I said, ebony, you know, the, there's there there maybe you've just gotten lucky too that's the other thing mm-hmm. but no it's a good idea to oil them you know i just started making my own leather balm and eric has been talking about making his own fingerboard oil i was thinking about it what would we name it i don't know i don't have any time for that okay bye <laughs> should we do another horror story here's a horror story for you i was in atlanta for guitar tech duty At a private event at the Tabernacle, one of the guitar players brought their own Gibson Les Paul and I was getting it set up. I made a major truss rod adjustment to it to help it get into place. I placed one hand in the middle of the neck and gently lifted up on the headstock with the other. Well, I'd have to say that the headstock must have already been cracked. Oh, dear. It had just flown on an airplane, so there's that. Because it came off in my hand. Oh, no. That's not good. This was 15 minutes before showtime. <laughs> I handed one of the rented guitars that was there to my artist, and he played that for the evening. Since the break happened on my bench, I had the break repaired back home in Denver, which cost me all of my gig money, and I have never lifted up on a headstock like that since. That's from Brian Coates, retired guitar repair person, now owner of Music Go Round in Aurora, Colorado. Wow. I know. That's Thanks. a nightmare. Thanks, Brian. Do you want to read one? Yeah. This didn't happen to me, but I watched it happen. I was visiting one of the big box musical instrument stores. 
not that one, but the other one. Oh, the other one. The other one. And happened to be hanging out near the counter. A customer walked up and asked the guy behind the counter if he could buy a whole box of strings because he broke strings so frequently on his strat. Sure, the employee said. Then the customer asked, do you have any of those extra screws, springs, and little metal things? I've lost a few of those when restringing, and now I can only play with three strings. <laughs> the employee and I exchanged side glances. Then he took a strat off the wall and asked the customer to show him how he was restringing the guitar. It turns out the guy was unscrewing the intonation screws all the way out of the saddle and saddles and bridge, threading the string through the screw's hole, through the intonation spring, then replacing the intonation screw, grinding up the string, screw, and saddle along the way. He was an older guy and had been doing this for years. Wow. Kudos to the employee. He showed the customer how to properly restring a strat and assured him that he would break far fewer strings that way. I guess we all have something to learn. Take care in Idaho. That's from Joe in Denver. Wow. Wow we yeah. hey I've got a I've got a uh, tech question but it's for you. Oh for oh so you're going to read it to me. Yeah. Cool. Hi Eric and Melissa. I like to use strap locks on my guitars. Melissa, what is the best way to expand the holes in a new strap so that the 3/8 inch locks will fit? That's from Justin. Mm, Justin, that's kind of a tricky thing to do because of the slot in the strap button holes. And so if you take a drive punch to it, that slot's just going to open and you're not going to do a dang thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The slot's going to stretch and so your hole will remain the same size. Um, so if you're going to do it with a drive punch, you're going to need to do it real carefully, real slowly. Hold this that slot together somehow. Maybe put some masking tape so the slot doesn't slide apart. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, something to keep it together. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess if I were going to do it, I would mask it to keep them together and use a drive punch. They sell a set of those punches at Harbor Freight. Oh, yeah. And they're like nine bucks. It's so cheap. Yeah. And it's just different sizes of holes. Yep. And you just tap on it with a hammer and... Yep. Makes it really easy. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't try and cut it by hand or anything. It's going to look terrible if you try and do that. Yeah. I used to get... I used to see guys who would just um, elongate the slot with an X-Acto knife. Yeah, that makes sense, but once you get the, the strap locks on there, you might get some warping because it's not it doesn't fit well yeah. in the hole. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Yeah. Yeah. All righty, well, let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with more. Okay. Before we take a break, this episode, this very special episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. Oh, it's the best coffee. Listen, you've got to try it. You've got to try it. It's Apex Coffee Roasters is based in Waco, Texas. They search the globe for the best coffee beans that they can find, roasting them in-house to unlock the natural aromas and flavors that make each cup an individual experience. Order Apex Coffee online. You know you want to. Look, Fret Files listeners can use my promo code PINUP at checkout to receive 10% off. That's P-I-N-U-P. PINUP. Get 10% off at apexcoffeeroasters.com. Do it! Hey, guitar nerds. Visit malcoleather.com to check out a variety of made-to-order leather guitar straps, or you can email malcoleather at gmail.com for custom work. Every Malco guitar strap is designed and built by hand by me. 
Check out my Instagram at Malco Leather to see examples of my past work. And as an added bonus, I offer free shipping in the U.S. for orders over $35. Visit MalcoLeather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O Leather.com. Do you have any idea what I do with my time? Let me tell you. It's consumed entirely by building custom guitars, repairing and restoring guitars, making custom guitar pickups. I make uh, replica black guard, uh, Bakelite pick guards. These are all available online. You can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's more the repair side of things. To see what's going on there, I've got a price chart. I've got, you know, pictures, examples of work. I've got a custom pickup order form. I would love to help you with your guitar repair or restoration or uh, just, you know, whatever you got in mind. Shoot me an email. Whatever. Give me a call. If you want to see the guitars I make, go over to pinupcustomguitars.com. That's P-I-N-U-P, like pinup girl. I always feel like I have to spell it. I probably don't. You uh, understand, I'm sure. Anyway, check it out, and uh, I'll see you there. All right, you want to do a horror story or a tech question? Let's do another horror story. Okay. Okay, it's 1996, one of the first ukulele festivals, now they're a dime a dozen, at a Grange Hall in western Massachusetts. There were several acts before my band. We were to play a set and then remain on stage to accompany the headliner, who is a man named Herbert Cowrie, also known as Tiny Tim. Wow, Tiny Tim, man. Yeah. You youngsters may not know of him, but let me assure you, he was a big deal in the 60s. Anyway, we were hot that night, and the crowd was pretty revved up after we played a bunch of tunes. We finished our set as Tiny. I call him Tiny, but I really wanted to meet him and have the opportunity to address him as Mr. Tim. Mm. Made his entrance. Entrance. We had no idea what he was going to play, but we were well-versed in obscure tunes and had good ears, so after a great set, we were ready to roll with whatever he threw at us. Mind you, Tiny knew literally thousands of tunes. The man was an encyclopedia of musical knowledge, and as it turns out, sports trivia. (laughs) He took to the stage and received a very warm welcome from the audience. We had never met the man, so we huddled briefly. Tiny told us that whenever he waved his right hand in the air to not take it personally, but that he just wanted to play something different. He was famous for his medleys, where he'd segue from tune to tune to tune. He proceeded to talk to the audience and describe us as a wonderful orchestra. We were a quartet. (laughs) Here's where it gets ugly. As he was speaking, he kept steadying himself by holding the microphone stand. That's not a good sign. Yeah. I was to his right, sitting with a square neck national tricone in my lap. I started to get very concerned about him and was in the process of putting my guitar down so I could get up and ask him if he was okay. As I started to get get up, Tiny fell over like a tree falling in the forest. Timber! Oh, man. It was awful. My first thought was that my wife and five-year-old son were in the front row and didn't want him to land on them as he was pretty a pretty big guy. Yeah. Luckily, the stage was only about three feet above the rest of the hall, but it was one of the most pathetic sights I have ever seen. Tiny's giant Chuck Taylors were still on the stage while he was face-planted on the floor. Wow. Luckily, there was actually a doctor in the house who tended to Tiny before the ambulance arrived. He had suffered a heart attack. Oh, Oh my God. Oh, I thought he was drunk. That makes me sad. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Sorry, Tiny Tim. Well, he's dead now. (laughs) But it's... So he can hear you and he appreciates it. Okay, good. 
He was taken away and spent the next week recovering in a local hospital, but sadly he died of another heart attack about six weeks later. Wow. Our band retreated to the green room, which was actually the kitchen downstairs. This is a Grange Hall, don't you know? And proceeded to take the edge off with a large bottle of bourbon. Yeah. We also attempted to straighten out the mic stand that Tiny took down with him. It was shaped like a banana. And while we were working on it, we wondered if it might be better to leave it alone and keep as a, keep it as a souvenir of a truly bad experience. He also took a practically brand new SM57 down with him. What's an SM57? Oh, that's a microphone. A sure SM57. Cool. It was none the worse for wear, and we contemplated contacting Sure to give them a testimonial as to the ruggedness of their microphones. (laughs) Here's the kicker. We were contracted to play a second set with Tiny. We rose to the occasion and squeezed one out, but it was pretty dismal. Mind you, this was way before the days of everyone having a cell phone video camera, but there was a recording of the show, and it's made... It made its way to both A Current Affair and whatever that other trashy entertainment news magazine was. I can't remember. It could be seen on national television standing up to help... I could be seen on national television standing up to help Tiny as he fell. It kind of sucked, but I guess it was my 15 minutes of fame. The saddest part of this is that Tiny was a fascinating fellow, a real wellspring of information. He knew more about a little-known period of American music known... As the crooner period than anyone. Yeah. But he was largely considered a freak of the 60s due to his appearance on Laugh-In and getting married on The Tonight Show, etc. I've played plenty of awful gigs, but no money for no money, but this one was by far the worst. That's from Cartwright. Man, Tiny Tim was a cool guy, and he's, I mean, he's absolutely right. He really was an icon of the 60s. Uh, But yeah, he was a throwback guy like, like Leon Redbone. Oh, okay. You know, Leon Redbone, yeah. here's Leon Redbone in the 60s and 70s and 80s playing, you know, like uh, Jelly Roll Morton songs. Right. And Tiny Tim was a lot the same way. He just was enamored of, you know, the crooner era of music. And wow, that's what a crazy story. Cartwright, dude, thank you so much yeah, for sending that in. That That's a killer. It's a little piece of history right there. Absolutely. I have a few crazy horror stories. Ooh. You want to hear one of mine? Absolutely, Any I requests? Do. You've heard all my stories. Of course I have. How about the one um, where the person had a seizure? <laughs> well, that's all, really. Oh. There's nothing else much to say other than, um, well, it, it was a gig in a like a real mud bucket blues club, and I won't even mention the name of the club. It was like the kind of... The kind of club where I there'd be a fight every night, like you knew that there would yeah. just be a fight. Yep. And this <clears throat> group came in and uh, sat down at a table, and one of them uh, was wheeled in in a wheelchair. And halfway through a song, like I was, you know, really feeling it and playing well, and I looked up, and this person in the wheelchair had had gotten up and was starting to freak out and waving waving their hands around and and whatnot. And I thought, wow, I, yeah, get up from the wheelchair. <laughs> you know, this is really into it. This is really, this is really, uh, you know, my music is really touching people. Well, then he fell over and, uh, everybody gathered around him and he was having a seizure. So, you know, what, what do you, what exactly is it that you're supposed to do when you're on stage in the middle of a song and someone in the crowd has a seizure and everyone gathers around them 
We stopped playing. Oh, good. I thought I mean, you were going to say you kept playing. Uh, oh, you my can't, God. You can't keep playing, but it feels <laughs> weird. To, I don't, you don't know what to do. I didn't right? know what to do, but I just we just stopped playing and said, oh, we're going to take a break, make sure that everybody's okay. And I, an ambulance came and got him, and it was just, you know, that's just that's just blues gigs. That's wow. just another blues gig. I've got a crazy story for you. Okay. I went, I might, maybe I told this on the podcast before. I don't know. I don't remember. Okay. But um, there was a blues band that I used to sit in with occasionally. And uh, just when their guitar player couldn't make it. And they had a gig just a few blocks from my house in, in uh, when I lived in Seattle. So I thought, man, what a great opportunity to go see them with their guitar player so that I can kind of get a feel for what he does. Because when I sit in with a blues band, you know, I just, there's no rehearsals. There's no, you just show up and they say, shuffle in G and you, and you go. Right. Right. So I thought this will be great. Like a little homework, you know, a little understudy. I can, I can see what their guitar player does uh, when he's there. So that when I fill in, I know what to do. So I just picked a little dark corner of the club and, didn't, you know, make any big deal of myself being there. I don't even, uh, I don't even know if I said hi to the guys, but, um, halfway through their set, they said, Hey, we want to thank you for coming out. And there's t-shirts for sale back there. And we've got CDs and we want to introduce everybody in the band. And he introduced the drummer and the bass player and everybody said, there's one more guy we'd really like to introduce. And he points toward me. Uh, sitting back here in the way in the back in the dark, you know, nobody ever, nobody's, he's, he's kind of like a fifth member of the band and, uh, nobody's really noticed him tonight, but we want to point him out. And I, I just felt honored that they were, that they had chosen to, to <laughs> introduce me. I mean, I didn't know. I was just, yeah. I just walked down there. It was two blocks from my house. And I was just just checking them out, you know, yeah. I thought, you don't need to introduce me, you know, so I, so I stood up, and as he was saying this, and kind of waved, and, you know, they, like, then he says, uh, Jim, back there in the sound booth, <laughs> and I looked behind me, and sure enough, there was a, a tiny little sound booth about, you know, three feet up from the rest of the uh-huh. floor, I was the only other person back there. He wasn't talking about me. He was talking about the sound man. <laughs> Jim back there in a the sound booth, he's kind of like a fifth member of the band. He makes the band sound real good. And here I'm standing up in front of Jim waving to everyone like an <laughs> idiot. <clears throat> and uh, then, of course, you know, Brian, the band leader, who is such a gracious guy. This was not his fault. This was all my fault. You know, seeing what <laughs> seeing what I was doing. He said, oh, yeah, there's, also, there's Eric. He sits in with us sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> here's a song, but, you know, then they went into their gig, yeah. So it really wasn't my gig, but it's a horror story. <laughs> Terrible. And then to add insult to injury, I, you know, I, I left immediately after that. I just had turned so red, like, uh, embarrassed. I went out uh, to walk home, and I noticed that my my zipper was down. <laughs> My fly was down. So while I was doing that, my my fly was down. That was that was a good night. Oh yeah, pretty good one. Funny one. Do you have a uh, uh, yeah? Let's read another horror story, shall we? Okay. 
My gig horror story is the story of when two-fifths of my band quit on the sidewalk of the Comet Tavern in Seattle as we were about to load in for sound check. We were booked as the opening band on a three-band bill. As we were loading in, the booker informed us that the headliner had demanded that they go on first, and the middle band had canceled. So we were going on much later, and we needed to kind of fill two slots. <laughs> the singer called home to, his in, to inform his wife that he was going to be late, and this did not go well. So he ended up leaving in a ta- getting in a taxi and leaving. Awesome. So I decided the show must go on. So I said I would fake being the singer for the night. That's always a good. Oh, yeah. That's always a good good call. The bass player did not like this plan at all, saying it was going to be a subpar performance without the singer and refused to participate. He and the drummer exchanged insults and the bass player packed his stuff and left. I looked at the other guitar player and informed him he was playing bass tonight. He then informed me he had never held a bass guitar before. (laughs) Fortunately, our rehearsal room was close by, like walking distance, so the three of us went to figure something out since we thought we had a little time. We were at a rehearsal space for all of 15 minutes, and the booker called to tell us the band that demanded to go on first showed up, but the guitar amp died during sound check. There was no other gear at the club, so they left. She demanded we get back down there ASAP and play some freaking music for the people that paid the cover, so that's what we did. We (laughs) were so bad that as we played, we watched the entire crowd, maybe 30 or 40 people, file out one by one, ask for their money back during our set. Wow. By the time we were done, the booker was the only person left at the bar, and she was just sitting there staring at us with her arms folded in disbelief at how terrible we were. All she said was, nice job, and then walked in the back and closed the office door where we couldn't ask her for any money. Needless to say, we didn't get paid. We just packed up and left. Good times. That's from Zach in Seattle. Oh, man. That's painful. Oh, that is painful. <clears throat> we st- we have so many more of that. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to read one. Okay, you read one. First, hope you two and your boys are doing well and happy. We are. Thank you. About 16 years ago, my band had been scheduled to play a short tour in November that started in Reno, Nevada. We were from Boise, Idaho. We started the drive to Reno. Weather was very cooperative, which was a nice surprise. We were also touring with another band that happened to play ska, so they had six members. Along the way to Reno, the other band's van blew a tire on the freeway. We stopped to assist to get the road trip going again. It was discovered that I was the only person whom had changed a wheel on the road before, so I'm thinking, no problem, we'll get this taken care of and be on our way. Wrong, they didn't have a spare. Amidst this recent discovery, a road assistance ambulance saw us and pulled over and stopped to check on us. At this time, our drummer who suffered from epilepsy saw the lights and had a seizure. Oh my God, no. He rolled a couple feet down in the burrow and continued his seizure. Oh, my God. Luckily, he had informed our band of his condition and instructed us on what to do, basically to leave him alone. The paramedics rushed over, and I explained what was going on, and they checked him out. And after he came out of the seizure, oh, after that, he came out of the seizure. Luckily, he just gathered some dirt and dried weeds and was able to get back in the van and relax. It was decided to drive to El... Ely, Nevada, the nearest city, and get another tire. It was also a Sunday, about 3 p.m., so we decided to drive down after a series of phone calls and found one shop that was open, and they had one correct size tire, which took about all of the available money from the other band. 
The downside, you might ask yourselves? Well, during the drive, our drummer, who was relaxing in the back of the van, had sat up, was making conversation, laughing with everyone, when our van hit a bump entering town, and it dislocated his shoulder. Oh, my God. It then came to light that he is also double-jointed and very prone to dislocated joints. We got the drummer to a hospital and proceeded to the tire store, and then got the wheel put back on the van, picked up our drummer from the hospital, and got back on the road to Reno. We arrived at the venue in Reno and loaded in. We decided to have our singer do a solo acoustic set since our drummer was out of commission until the next day. We asked the bartender where the promoter was. Since they were not answering phone calls, texts, or emails, they said they didn't know. 30 minutes to showtime, the promoter finally calls. Says they're sorry, they had a family issue, they couldn't be at the gig that night, but don't worry, they had radio ads and promotion all over town. That was a lie, according to the bartender. We saw two vagrants arguing over who should get a leftover beer a patron left when we started playing. That was our audience for the night. <laughs> the show must indeed go on. The next morning, the other band decided to pack it in and head home. We tried to convince them to stay on for the rest of the tour to no avail. Their drummer decided to soldier on with us after a heated argument with his bandmates. The remaining four shows went off without a hitch, and it was a pretty great it was pretty great after that, with the exception of driving back home through several snowstorms, example Donner's Pass, and one severely nasty storm upon entering Idaho where the roads were iced over and I was driving, and the only one awake at three AM. Equipment dying during a show never seemed to bother me much too much after that string of events. That's from Aaron. Wow. Yeah. That is a nightmare. <laughs> I asked you guys for gig horror stories, and you delivered. You delivered. This is great. Thank you. Do you want to read one? Yeah, let's do one. <clears throat> In the fall of 1988, we had put together a ragtag group of musicians from the dorms at Carroll College to play cover songs for the annual casino night. We practiced for weeks in a small rehearsal room. Everything was sounding great in rehearsal. We didn't get to warm up or make adjustments for much the much larger agricultural agriculture barn where we would be playing, which in retrospect was our first mistake. We showed up early, but not early enough to do a practice run to dial in the sounds. We unloaded the van and turned it all on. Our bassist, a six foot nine giant mutant of a man, had unfortunately been medicating his undeclared stage fright all afternoon with some good old fashioned Jim Beam whiskey. By the time the drummer kicked off the intro to Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll, that very last simultaneous stutter hit of the cymbal and snare, all I could feel and hear was the air moving from a tall 8x10 Ampeg bass amp cab that was aimed squarely at me. (laughs) That cab occupied or overshadowed every frequency on 11. The bass... Enveloped my ear and nothing else, not a cymbal nor a guitar lick coming out of a Les Paul and a 50-watt Marshall, woof, 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 was all I could make out for the next five songs. I politely asked this drunken ogre to please turn it down, a request that he was not open to, so I moved as far as the vocal mic cord would allow me to go. Even still, I couldn't hear another note coming from any of the other members of the band. I settled on watching the guitarist and where he was with his riffs. It was the only cue I could sing from. I couldn't hear the guitar and I could barely make out the drums, but I knew I had to scream, been a long time. I hadn't even finished butchering the chorus when I realized the band was already into the bridge. I limped along in shame and with disgust over the course of the next five songs, the bassist and roommate at the time was in no mood to turn down his bass, so you can guess how that gig went. 
He even later that weekend fell on my bed and broke the neck off my very first Tysco guitar. I moved out into another room that following Monday. Rock and roll was not going to be the life for me. Looking back now, though, that was so rock and roll. <laughs> the second disaster is that I opened for the alt country band Richard Richmond Fontaine. I decided on doing a couple of John Fay covers and John some, Fahey John Fahey covers and some original songs in the same vein, but due to feedback and ill-suited sound hole cover and most likely a phase issue, I couldn't hear my G and B string in my monitor. If you know Fahey's music, then you know that my rendition must have sounded like the train had gone off the tracks. Practice saved me, but I wasn't sure where I was in the song. They said it sounded fine out in the audience, but people say all kinds of things. I haven't gigged since. Let the professionals do it. That's from Scott. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate that. <clears throat> you know, I forgot, I almost forgot here that a couple of people sent me some uh, uh, emails with their audio version of their horror story. Oh. So let's see if this works. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Here's a Luthery horror story for you. A year ago, I finished building an acoustic guitar and consigned it with a very well-known dealer in the U.S. Six months later, he sends this email. Your guitar has high action, mostly from a bowed neck. The truss rod helped some, but is now extremely tight, and I'm afraid to force it. Is it at the end of its adjustment, or is it just over tight for some reason? I replied, the truss rod shouldn't be that tight, but it's okay to tighten it further as long as you manually put a back bow in the neck with your hands, then tighten the truss rod to hold that flatter position. Please don't rely on the truss rod to actually change the curvature. If that doesn't fix it, I'll be glad to come in and either tweak it in your shop or bring it home to work on it. The next day, hi, I tried bending the neck back and I think I may have stripped the nut or broken the rod. Oh, no. I told him to just ship the guitar back to me. Yeah. And after confirming that he had, in fact, snapped the steel truss rod, mm. which you can see in the pick on the left, I put the guitar away until yesterday when I finally mustered the will to dive into the crime scene investigation. And here's my observation so far. First, I use the Stumac Hot Rod Double Action Truss Rod. It is extremely well-built, and as you can see from the pick, the truss rod didn't fail where the adjuster is welded to it. The steel rod itself has actually been sheared off from what I believe is an unreasonable amount of pressure from an Allen wrench. Yeah. Number two, before I took the strings off the guitar, I used a digital gauge to measure the amount of bow, and it was a whopping 20 thousandths of an inch. <laughs> this is especially <laughs> suspicious because I always install two carbon fiber stiffening bars in all my necks. So the neck should never move that much. Yeah. And lastly, if you look at the picture on the right, you'll see two interesting things. First, the end of the truss rod has actually cracked the end of the fingerboard right next to the nut. Second, you can see a small gap underneath the brass block that's at the end of the truss rod. Which leads me to my current theory. The neck has a massive amount of bow in it because my dealer turned the truss rod the wrong way. Oh, they thought they were no. taking out the bow, but actually created more bow, and then they kept going until they snapped to the truss rod. Oh. I've now removed the neck from the guitar, and my next step is to remove the fingerboard so I can extract the truss rod. I'm guessing that the truss rod will be shaped like a giant smile, and that the yeah. neck will straighten out as soon as the truss rod is out of there. 
If I'm right, then I need to strip the nitro off the neck, make a new fingerboard, refinish the neck, reinstall the neck, and refret the guitar. If I confirm that the truss rod was turned the wrong way, leading to nearly $1,000 in rebuilding costs, I'll have to have an uncomfortable conversation with my former dealer. What do you think of my theory, and do you have any tips for my next steps? (laughs) Oh, thank you for that. uh, He's asking advice. I don't know man i it's an uncomfortable thing because uh you know if if he had um i don't know it's here's here's a thought is this a salesman or a tech you know because there's a big difference <laughs> yeah a lot of salesmen don't think so but there's a big difference so uh yeah it's absolutely possible I don't know, and I don't know how you would ever confirm that, and I have a feeling that if you go to have that conversation with these guys, that they are just going to flatly deny that they did it, and that it's all on you. It's your fault. That's my guess. I don't know. I don't know what you can do, man. It just sounds like a loss, but, (laughs) oh, man, what a nightmare. Thanks. Thanks for submitting a story. I'll read another one. <clears throat> Hello, Eric and Mel. Love the podcast. It's my favorite. And happy Halloween. I have a horror gig story for you. It's been a while, so bear with me. So my band at the time was scheduled to play a show with Quiet Riot somewhere wow. around Seattle. Just the two bands. We'd played the venue many times before, so we knew what to expect. And the sound guy was always easy to work with. So we showed up. Just an hour before doors, we had a little chuckle, as bands do, about our bus being bigger. And that was the last smile of the day. We entered with our gear, only to find Quiet Riot had somehow taken up the whole huge stage. After immediately inquiring, we were told it was in their contract that we couldn't move any of their equipment, and the remaining two feet is all we get. (laughs) There were curtains covering most of their stuff, but aside from just barely enough room for the drums in the center, just the two feet, my pedal board was at least one foot and my feet were the other. (laughs) Well, whatever, right? So we go on and start the show, but my frustrations started bleeding into my performance and into the third or so song, my road-worn strap button finally gave up the ghost and stripped out, causing a good crash. Oh, no. Right onto the pedal board. And then, off the four-foot stage. Oh, no. The band kept going, and I scrambled, and with some help from the audience, reconnected a power supply, and I finally got around to finishing the song on one knee. Urge to kill rising. (laughs) So the staff snagged a bar stool for me, as my backup guitar hadn't made the trip there. But I had just enough time before the show to change the strings on my main axe, so I thought I'd be okay, but not even that helped, as on our last song, I broke my D-string. As it turned out, the stage dive, my guitar took, weakened the strings at the nut, and a picture exists somewhere of my face at the moment. The end is, within the same song, I broke another string, and for the finale, I did the unspeakable, and I threw a tantrum on stage, destroying my guitar. I'm ashamed, and it was stupid on so many levels, but after that show, I swore I'd keep my temper in check no matter what. But it had to happen once, right? Anyway, hope it's fun to hear, and keep up the great work, you too. That's from Slay J. Wow. Thanks, brother. Wow, thank you. I've known that guy for a long, long, long time. Oh. Yeah. Cool. He's a good guy. Thank you, brother. 
We've got one more uh, tech oh, question. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Should we take it? Sure. Hello, Eric and Melissa. I've been enjoying the show from rural South Dakota while I work as a UPS driver. I can confirm that UPS has special procedures in place for packages with a significant insured value. Excellent. However, the road is a dangerous place and your package mm-hmm. recommendations are spot on. Good. I don't remember what they were, but thank pa- you. Oh, I, I said package. Packaging. So you're, you're boxing up recommendations. A mm-hmm. uh, quick question. I know you prefer to build three guitars a month, but demand must be exceeding that considering that custom orders have been disabled on the website <laughs> from time to time. Have you ever given any thought to scaling up your custom orders? And if so, how would you even go about it? Love the show, Ryan. Mm-hmm. You know, Ryan, we were just talking about this today. Yeah, we were. It's I- like you guys brought a dump truck worth of work and just dumped it right on Eric's head. I love it and I appreciate it. But yeah, I have disabled the custom orders and I don't know if I ever will start them up again, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. Um, I might just start making guitars how I want to make them and then list them for sale. I don't know. I haven't decided yet, but until I get caught up, you can't order a guitar from me. And I'm booked up until I think February or March. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, it's true. I only I only build about three guitars a month. Sometimes two, sometimes four. But I don't really want to ramp it up because if I ramp it up, what it means is I need to get an employee or something. Right. And uh, I don't want it to turn into a slay kind of a, a situation where I get frustrated and bash a guitar over someone's head. Yeah. Which is what would happen. I don't really want, I don't really, I like working alone. What can I say? Yep. That's what I want to do. Well, and you know, our oldest is about, is going to be seven. So maybe in another. Maybe in 10 years, yeah. he'll be helping me make guitars and I'll make six a month. I don't know. But um, I like working alone. I like what I do. I like the process I have in place. I like the guitars that I make that I'm really happy with the way they've been turning it out. So I with the way they've been turning out. So I don't have any intent on uh, on changing things. It's just not what I want to do. Right. I'm just going to keep going how I'm going. Right. Well, and it's not like you're just, just doing custom guitars. You also no. are overloaded with repairs. I'm and also doing repairs and refrets and... and custom pickups and custom pick guards and restorations and all kinds of things. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Ryan. Here's another horror story. It was just about this time of year, and a group of friends had gathered around the fire pit for songs, stories, libations, and other mood-loosening endeavors. Just before sunset, as burgers were cooking and the first songs were being sung, one could feel the thirst for blood in the air. In this case, it was mosquitoes. The singer finished his fireside song and presented a large can of repellent in heroic fashion. At this time, all lined up for a liberal spraying, he began with the children. After exhausting the can, (laughs) the food was readied, the fire was tended, and the guitar got stuck in its case. Now when I say the guitar got stuck in its case, I mean that the overspray from the repellent found its way downwind, landing on the back of his D35 that was leaning against a lawn chair, softening the lacquer sufficiently to bond to the luxurious and fuzzy lining of its case. The back and one side were securely and evenly glued to the case, when he went to retrieve it, 
with a full belly and beer in hand. Wow. On the upside, the refinishing job came to me. I told him he was his own he was on his own with the case. That's from Craig. Wow. I did not know that mosquito repellent would soften lacquer. Hey, that might be a trick. Anybody who needs to soften your lacquer? Well, think about what it's doing to your skin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if it can do that to lacquer. My goodness. That's that's terrible. That's yeah. a great story. Thank you. We've got another one here. Hello, Mel and Eric. I like how he put you first. Yep. Me too. Here is my gig horror story. Open Air Festival at the North Sea in Germany in 2008. About three and a half thousand people. It had already been a so-so gig as we had to play with a drummer and a bass player that had never played with us before except for one unplugged practice the night before the gig and I was stressed out keeping everything and everyone together. However, last song, it ends with an epic and the only guitar solo, something I was really looking forward to the whole night. So here we go. First tones, everything sounds okay, but then, all of a sudden, the amp slowly dies, a very sad death, and the solo just fades out. <laughs> what, a, what a way to end a gig. Cheers, that's from Sebastian. Jeez. He sent an actual recording. This is a recording of his gig. Okay, here comes the solo. It's, it's all you, Sebastian. Take it. Sounding good. <laughs> and his and his solo just fades out. Dang it. That's a bummer. <laughs> Sorry, Sebastian. <laughs> well, that was fun. Thank you so much for participating and thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Back to normal next time around, so get in your questions. Submit your questions at ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is call or text 757-774-8482. And uh, we'll use your question as part of the show. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Happy Halloween. Good night.